0: Isaiah chapters 26 and 27 today, let's open our Bibles, turn in them, click over to them, whatever is your preferred method of study, in a message that I've entitled, uh, The Pathway to Peace. And so once more, let's, let's take our hearts to uh, the Lord. Father, once again, we just want to come to you and humble ourselves before you and say thank you, God, for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, now we just want to pray that you give us ears to hear you, that we not be distracted from you, Lord, but that we be alert and aware, as you have said, uh, that we are to watch and we are to pray. And so, God, we're praying, or we're watching, we're waiting. We just pray, God, that uh, you would, you would uh, speak to our hearts, and we thank you for your faithfulness to do so, in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we're in a section of Scripture that has catapulted us into the future, forward in time to a time when life as we know it no longer exists. Uh, God's judgment has been poured out upon the earth and in what the Bible refers to as the Great Tribulation. Uh, The earth has since experienced restoration. And now here we are in this section of Scripture, in this what we might refer to as a post-tribulation period, known as the thousand-year reign or millennial reign of Christ upon the earth, when we, you and me, will rule and reign with Him as kings and priests, and we will enjoy His exaltation over all creation. And so with that, let's turn our attention to the very first verse, chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, and God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks, Uh, open the gates that the righteous nation uh, which keeps the truth may enter in. Now if you were with us last week, you remember we spent significant time in the very first verse of the 25th chapter of this book of Isaiah, and we were looking at it, we were learning from it what it means to praise, to worship, and to exalt the name of God. And it seems, as we read on, that there's going to be actually quite a bit of of, uh, singing and worshiping and rejoicing in the kingdom age, and appropriately so. Well, here Isaiah gives us kind of a sneak peek, an advanced viewing of one of the songs that will be sung or sang, however you say, uh, in the land of Judah a song that celebrates the Lord's salvation. Now, a couple of things we want to make mention of here as we work our way through... Number one, uh, Isaiah writes, we have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks, or uh, it means ramps or protective measures. And what that means is that this city will be so safe, so secure, it won't need any walls, it won't need any ramparts, it won't need any of what we might consider to be common defensive measures. God has delivered His people, His salvation serves, to keep us secure and safe. Now today, we need walls, amen? We need border protection, uh, drug trafficking increasing, human trafficking increasing, crime rates surging, overdose rates on the increase among America's youth. Guys, all can be tied and traced back in some significant measure to our current administration's continual neglect of border security. Okay, open borders are not safe in a world riddled with sin and self-seeking. Does that make sense? But when Jesus rules the earth, uh, such measures aren't going to be necessary. He says we have a strong city and salvation itself will serve as security. By the way, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but this world has never really, never truly known a righteous city. Before the fall, there never even was a city. I mean, Adam and Eve, really, do they qualify as making a city? I mean, I've never driven past a, a, a city census sign that said population two, you know. Uh, it wasn't until after the fall that cities came into being. And so all we've ever really known are cities from a fallen perspective. We've never truly known a godly city. And so it's not uncommon to find folks, and I'll be honest, I'm generally in that number, who disapprove of city life. Not in the sense that it's wrong to live there, I mean, but more in that sense of, I mean, they're okay to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Does that make sense? Well, that's the kind of thing we say. You know, we like to romanticize the idea of isolation. You know, a little cabin in the woods crystal clear river running by it. Maybe you're swilling coffee on the front porch or uh, playing your guitar. There you are. You're just uh, communing with nature. But the Bible says that the man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, to which we would say in that case, yes, I mean, if we were to analyze it, if we were to truly be uh, uh, you know, honest about it, our desire in such cases to get away from all this madness, just to have a little solace and reprieve from all the crazy, you know. Amen. But we need to see the fact that when the kingdom of God is upon the earth, there's going to be cities. However... They'll be redeemed cities. Glorious communities organized under the strength, salvation, truth, and righteousness of the Lord. You see, God's ideal ultimately is not an escape from humanity. It's not communing privately with nature. It's found in godly community. It'll be realized in a strong city. He says, open the gates. That the righteous nation which keeps truth may enter in. Family, it's something that I have been pounding on as of late because our culture has been spiraling out of control in this area. But I want you to notice the relationship between righteousness and truth. Truth is not subjective. It's not based in personal opinion or perspective. It is an inescapable, unavoidable reality or actuality to which we are all accountable. In fact, the wellspring of truth is not a program. It's not simply an agreed-upon set of standards or procedures. It is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, of course, the Bible also tells us that God is love, doesn't it? And that's why I say that truth and love are so intimately integrated and interwoven that they are essentially one. Guys, you can't really be about one apart from the other. Love is truth and truth is love. So that if you are not willing to speak hard truth to someone, don't say it's because you love them. Now, it may be because you feel more comfortable coddling them. It may be easier to avoid the issue. But love, listen to me, demands truth. And truth demands love. And if you neglect one of those elements, then I submit to you that you've really neglected both. If we love them, we will share the truth with them because it's truth that sets people free. Anything less is simply to entertain a lie. Does that make sense? But something else that we see truth tied to here is this word righteousness. In other words, truth is not found in perverse situations or a twisting of reality or a compromise of integrity. Truth is established in righteousness. The two are tethered together. So that we read things in scripture like the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and what? Righteous altogether. I'll give you just one more. Revelation 19 and verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it or sat on him was called faithful and true and in what's our word? Righteousness He judges and makes war. Truth and love are essentially one, and truth is tethered irreversibly to righteousness. Now, look at verse 3. He says, You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. Now guys, we have some territory to cover today, so I don't want you to get nervous about the fact that we're going to spend some time right here, okay, in these uh, verses that open up for us, if you'll allow me that term, this pathway to peace. I'm not sure how much research you've personally done upon the topic, but the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about peace, And the truth is that there's more than one kind of peace to be had. There is a, we might say, deceptive peace, a peace of this world that we might recognize as spiritual sleep or slumber, perhaps even a numbness that leads to destruction. So at the risk of splitting hairs, that's not really true peace, okay? Being numb to something doesn't mean there's no longer a problem. It simply means that I can any longer or I can no longer discern it. Does that make sense? There you are in the hospital. You're in tremendous pain. So what do you do? You hit the morphine drip and all the pain goes away. It doesn't solve the problem. It only numbs you to its reality. That's the peace of this world. True peace uh, takes place when I've obtained peace with God. Now, what Isaiah is talking about here is what we would call the peace of God. But I'm just wanting you to know that you cannot experience the peace of God until you first experience peace with God. Okay, And this takes place when we stop fighting against God and surrender to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible makes clear that you are either at war with God or you are at peace with God. But the only way that you can have peace with God is through absolute surrender to God, through submitting to Jesus as the Lord of your life. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, notice, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now... Once you have peace with God, you can have the peace of God. Our word is kept in your life. And I would have you notice it's perfect peace. Now in the Hebrew, it's shalom, shalom the repetition, communicating intensity. He shall keep you not in shalom. He will keep you in shalom, shalom. I mean, it is like the peace of all peace. It is a absolute peace. It is perfect peace. But there's a bit of responsibility connected to this. Did you catch it? Uh, it has to do with how we occupy our minds. You will keep him in perfect peace whose, notice, mind is stayed on you. Uh, Perfect peace, family, is not a matter of emotion or spirit or soul so much as it is a matter of the mind. Remember Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37? Not only are we to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our uh, soul, but also with all of our mind. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're not to set our mind on earthly things, but on things above. Uh, remember these words? Uh, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, are lovely, are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, there's the mindset, on these. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. You see how the peace of God and the uh, occupation of the mind are connected? The Christian life isn't a simple, unthinking life of just doing and experiencing. It occupies the mind. And where we, listen to me, where we set our mind is absolutely essential as it pertains to our walk with the Lord. And to take it one step further... This peace isn't kept in us because we just placed our mind on Him, but because we, the word is, stayed our mind on Him. You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Now this word stayed carries the idea of to lean or even to sustain, to be established. It's the same idea as when the priests of the Old Testament would lay their hands upon the head of the sacrificial animal with the idea or the concept of transferring the sins of the people upon it. Their hand would be stayed upon the animal. It would rest upon that animal. And so the question that confronts us is, what does your mind rest upon what is it that occupies your mind what is it that your mind is stayed upon what is it that it leans upon what is it that is sustained and established you see in your mind now Satan wants to get your mind upon anything other than the Lord but you and me if we're to have this perfect peace our mind can't come and go upon the Lord or occasionally lean upon the Lord, it has to be stayed upon Him. Why? Well, because that's indicative of trusting in the Lord. Did you see that? If our mind is stayed upon the Lord, well, that indicates that the implication is that I trust in the Lord. Guys, the more familiar I get with uh, the book of Isaiah, the more I am convinced that the Apostle Paul was an avid student of this book. I mean, remember these words, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This verse is like an exposition on Isaiah 26, three. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Thank God that He has your eternal best interests at heart and He will keep you in perfect peace. What you need to see about this, guys, is that this is not a ritual uh, peace through prayer kind of a thing that's taking place. It's learning to place your situations and circumstances in the hands of God and trusting Him to take care of it. You see, if I trust the Lord, I can... Thank the Lord that He's got it, and I don't have to worry about it. I have peace. Does that make sense? That's where this whole idea of, um, you know, be anxious for nothing, but through all, all things, through prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving. Yeah, we should be thankful about everything, but I think the context lends itself to, God, I'm giving it to you, and I thank you that you have it. Do you see what I mean? Once I thank God, I, I, I trust God, I can thank God I don't worry about it anymore. Thank you, Lord, that you have my best interests at heart ultimately, eternally. I trust you. I'm not going to worry. You see how that works? The same idea is expressed in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, we talked about that word, stayed, meaning to lean upon. It's the same exact root word in Proverbs 3, 5. Lean not or stay your mind not on your own understanding. Well, I can't figure it out. It doesn't matter. It's not about your understanding. You see, I'm not leaning on my own understanding. Uh, I'm leaning upon Him. I'm upheld by Him. You see, if you trust in the Lord, you don't lean on your own understanding. You lean upon Him. We're upheld by Him. And because of the promise found here in Isaiah 26, 3, we are issued the exhortation of verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever. You see, perfect peace comes to the one who trusts in the Lord. And so trust in the Lord forever. Not here and there, now and then, occasionally, as it's convenient, you see, but trust in the Lord how long? Come on, guys. How long are we going to trust in the Lord? Forever. For in Him, that is, the Lord, is everlasting strength. You can trust in the Lord forever because in the Lord is everlasting. Do you see how these connect? Strength. Strength. Why should we trust him so completely, so utterly, so absolutely? Because in him is everlasting strength. There is never going to be a time that his strength is insufficient to help you or insufficient to sustain you. And so trust in him forever. Amen? Okay. Verse 5, for he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. So this is the city of man, the city of of the lofty and the prideful people. It says he lays low. We're seeing comparison and contrast, uh, the city of man and the city of God. Uh, the humble He lifts up, the proud He brings low. In the New Testament vernacular, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 7, the way of the just is uprightness, O most upright. You weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. And the desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. By the way, can I take you back? Can I draw your attention back to verse 7 for just a moment? I want you to see what it says. Matter of fact, you do well to underline it, believer, because it says, The way of the just is uprightness, not uptightness. Okay? as someone has pointed out. Some Christians seem to misread this. They think the way of the Lord is uptightness. It's not. It's uprightness. Can somebody say amen? (laughs) In other words, there is a way about believers. There's just a way about them, you see. And it's not dishonesty Uh, It's not anything shady or untrustworthy. The just are about integrity, honor, truth, and transparency. Notice, almost upright. When's the last time you referred to God as almost upright? But the way of the just is uprightness. Notice, almost upright. So, why are those whom God has justified upright? Because they serve Him who is most upright. Guys, it carries the same connotation as be holy, for I am holy. The idea being the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. If God is holy and He lives in me, then His nature should evidence itself through me. So too, if God is upright, His people will walk in uprightness. Yeah? Okay, He says, you weigh the path of the just. What does that mean? It means God evaluates the way of our lives. Think about that. Think about that. God evaluates the way of your life. It matters to Him how we live. It matters to Him what we say. It matters to Him the things we do, how we conduct ourselves formally, businessly, personally, in relationships, whatever the case may be. It matters to Him why we do what we do. And as we wait for Him, it's important that we be able to say, and we've honored Your Word in the wait, or as we read it here, in the way of Your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for You. And the desire, guys underline it, Of our soul is for your name. It's for all that you are. All that you represent. All that you embody. Guys, what is the desire of your soul? Think about that for just a minute. What is the desire of your soul? When you desire something, when you desire someone, you'll wait for them. And you'll be glad to do it. And so... Our desire for the Lord is realized in our waiting upon Him. Did you see that? Honoring His Word as we wait upon Him. And notice, seeking after Him. In other words, guys, Isaiah kind of, he kind of categorize. he makes a category. He said, it doesn't matter if you're a night person. How many night owls we have? Come on, how many of you are night owls? Man, a lot fewer than I thought. I'm, yeah. How many of you are morning people? Okay, that seems to be okay. Well, listen, it just just doesn't matter. None of this matters. (laughs) Because if you're a night person or a morning person, Isaiah says the yearning of our spirit is to seek Him. Do you see that? In the night I have desired you. By my spirit I will seek you early. In other words, God is worthy of all of our time, all of our attention, all that we are, whenever we are. Does that make sense? Be it in the night, be it in the morning, man. Our hearts, our minds should be occupied. You will keep Him in perfect peace. Oh, look how it circles back. Whose mind is stayed on you? In the night, in the morning, doesn't matter. Lord, I trust in You. And the day will come when His judgments are in the earth and the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. In that day, the Bible says, righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, in verse 10... Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Uh, Essentially, guys, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that the goodness of God leads man to repentance. You know, there you are. And uh, you've been nothing but a sin-ridden, heathen, you know, your whole life. And then you come into the reality that it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you. And you think, how could God love someone like me? And it just begins to break you down, and it turns you to Him. And God, after all I've done, that You would love me, that You would demonstrate Your love for me, and that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And it brings us to repentance. Oh God, I love You. I want to respond to You, you see. But don't be misled. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 doesn't say that it leads everyone to repentance. Not everyone will respond to the grace and the mercy of God. Some people will only take advantage of it to further their own wicked ways. That's what Isaiah says here. They aren't grateful for the grace of God and their ways will end in shame, disaster, and destruction. Now, in verse 12, he says, Lord, you will establish peace for us for you have also done all our works in us. Underline it. Now, listen to me. Are these words ringing any kind of bell for you? I mean, do they even sound vaguely familiar to you? Like It's like, I don't know if I've ever read that, but it sounds familiar to me. Why is that? Listen to this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Guys, I'm telling you, Paul loved this book of Isaiah. He has done all our works in us. Or in the New Testament vernacular, it is God who works in us both to will and to do. For his good pleasure, in verse thirteen. O Lord, our God, masters beside you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead; they will not live. They are deceased; they will not rise. Therefore, you have. Punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Now, ultimately, we don't know specifically if he's talking about past idolatry for the nation or maybe Gentile nations who've oppressed them historically, previously. But he's confessing, essentially, uh, the past failures of his people. You know, of my people who are called by my name, you see, will turn from their sin, repent of their wicked ways. He's confessing the failures of, of his people. And he's acknowledging that the Lord alone has brought them victory and the good that's come of their nation is to his glory, you see. In verse 16, Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They have poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery, so we have been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. Notice. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Now, you might want to underline verse 16. Have you ever noticed how trouble has a tendency to take us to our knees? That's what he's saying. In trouble, O Lord, they visited you. They poured out a prayer, you see. Now, It's not, and this is one reason why when we should thank God when trouble visits our life. I mean, no one enjoys the actual experience of it, right? When we're being chastened, but the peaceable fruit Paul spoke of that uh, comes of it. But my point is, and it's not the only reason that trouble may visit us, but it's certainly a reason that trouble may find us. And it's this that pain leads to prayer. Have you noticed that? Pain leads to prayer, it drives us back. To the foot of the cross. Now on our own, we have a, we kind of tend to drift, don't we? But God is always bringing us back. And we should thank God for that. He says, we were like a woman giving birth. Uh, in other words, there was pain involved, significant pain involved. But what he's, notice what he says, he says that nothing fruitful came of it. Israel, in other words, Israel didn't respond to God's chastening in a way that fulfilled His plan for them. God wanted to birth blessings to the world through the nation of Israel, but it didn't happen. And Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. Now, one day God will use the nation of Israel tremendously upon the earth, but initially they failed to bring forth the fruit that God desired. What's the takeaway for you and me? God, help us to learn in our seasons of suffering... To bring forth the fruit that He desires from our lives. You understand? Now, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out The dead. Guys, if we had lots of time, I would spend time right here in this verse. But for now, I want you to know that the reality of the resurrection is not just a New Testament kind of truth, okay? It's found all throughout Scripture. Granted, it's a bit more veiled in the Old Testament. Paul tells us that life and immortality has been brought to light through Jesus Christ who abolished death. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked that eternally important question. It's a personal question. Do you believe this? The confident expectation of resurrection is consistent throughout Scripture. The resurrection of the righteous. Your people, he says, your dead shall live. Now, in verse 20, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will also disclose her blood. And will no more cover her slain. Now these words kind of snap us back to the idea of, but first, right? All these wonderful things that Isaiah has been sharing, has been speaking and prophesying of that are going to come to pass. But first, the indignation, the great tribulation and there will be as we read here in verse uh, 20 there will be those jewish individuals and we if again if we had time guys but you know jesus talked about it you know you know the abomination which causes desolation and pray this doesn't happen on the sabbath and when you see this take place flee he said he said don't go back in your home to catch a coat if you're at work don't go you know home to pick up any supplies just go because then there will be such persecution such tribulation such as the earth has never seen but there will be those Jewish individuals who flee, just like Jesus instructed uh, when this abomination which causes you know, tribula- uh, desolation uh, takes place in about halfway through the tribulation period. And God will protect them until the indignation, we read here, is past as He punishes the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Now, some like to see in verses 20 and 21... A reference to the rapture. Now, I don't really see that, at least as it pertains to the interpretation, okay? Now, it could certainly be drawn as an application, as the Lord will snatch us away, as we will be uh, hidden, as it were, behind closed doors. We'll be with the Lord as His wrath, His indignation is being poured out upon the earth. But again, application, sure. in Interpretation, I, I don't know. Okay. I'm not personally convinced. Okay, guys. We got 10 minutes. You ready? Chapter 27. In that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, what is the sword of the Lord, by the way? The sword of the Lord is the word of God, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, is this a literal sea serpent? It could be. I mean, it certainly could be. Uh, Most see this as a reference ultimately to Satan, that serpent of old, Revelation 12 and 9, who resists the Lord and ultimately will be destroyed by the Lord. Um, I'll just leave it at that for now. Verse 2, And in that day... Sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me who would set briars and thorns against me in battle. I would go through them. I would burn them together or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. And those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, back in chapter 26, I just made mention to you that Israel initially failed to bring forth fruit. But when the Lord restores them, you see what's going to happen with them? Their fruit will fill the face of the world. The vineyard of red wine is a reference to a fruitful Israel. We know it's very common that God refers to Israel as His vineyard. And He says the Lord Himself will tend to and take care of it. He will keep it night and day. He will provide for it. He will protect it. Now, He will water it? How is it that the Lord waters His own? Write it down. You can read it later. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 3. uh, John chapter 7. He waters through His word and the person and the power of His Spirit. And so, if you, here you are today, but as of late, perhaps you've been feeling a little parched spiritually, well, you might want to examine the time you've spent with the Lord, just sitting and soaking, marinating, as it were, meditating upon His Word. By the way, we love this invitation to reconciliation, don't we? Did you see it? Why be found fighting against the Lord? Take hold of His strength, even Jesus Christ, that you might make peace with the Lord. Remember, it's peace with God before we can experience the peace of God. Okay? In verse 7, He has struck Israel as He, uh, or has He, pardon me, has He struck Israel as He struck those who struck Him, or has He's been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him. In measure by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. And therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all of the fruit of the taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk. Stones that are beaten to dust, uh, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. So, in other words, what he's saying is that even in God's judgment against Israel, as he's correcting Israel, he showed mercy in not striking them as harshly as he struck those who struck Israel. Kind of hard to follow, but that's what he's saying. And we see that the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that ultimately in that day all Israel will be saved. And in verse 9, we see the fruit of Israel's repentance. A renouncing of idolatry, destroying of the altars, and serving the Lord exclusively. And by the way, the take home for you and me, may that be the fruit of our repentance as well. Serving Jesus Christ exclusively. Putting away those things that vie for the place of His priority, you see. But we serve Him. I might go as far as to say intentionally. If you're waiting just for inspiration to strike, for the feeling to overwhelm you, to get involved, guys, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, You need to be decisive and intentional about your service to the Lord. Maybe that's a word for someone here today. Okay, verse 10. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, The habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered they will be broken off. The women uh, come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore he who made them will not have mercy on them. And he who formed them will show them no favor. Uh, The strong city... The city of the righteous back in chapter 26 had salvation as its walls. Here the fortified city, the city of man, the world system, will be made desolate by the judgment of God. Now guys, you have the advantage of foresight in this now. You know this is going to happen. God will destroy this world system. So why then place your hope or your confidence in the ways of this world? He who formed them will show them no favor, okay? Now, verse 12, and where's my closer? Is Joseph here? He told me he was going to close. Is he back there? There he is, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 12, let's look at it. Oh, yeah, right on time. And it shall come to pass in that day the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And so it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. And they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. And they who are the outcasts in the land of Egypt shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Similar overtones really uh, to the way our time ended last week. Two cities, (laughs) two choices, two destinies. Victorious worship and salvation or eternal destruction and condemnation. Guys, what's what's the final word what what are we trying to say what what's being communicated here be reconciled to god in christ jesus choose life and peace in his name amen all right let's bow our hearts father day, after week, after month, after year, we stand in awe of your steadfast patience with us. God, that you continue to draw us back to your feet. And I pray, God, that you help us that we not resist you, but that we submit our hearts fully, completely to you. Teach us, God, what it means to keep our minds stayed on You because we trust You. And may Your peace guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. And guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I don't know, maybe you're at a place where the peace of God is seems like a distant second because you don't even have peace with God not honestly, not truly listen to me you can change that right here and right now Jesus shed his blood for your sin and for mine he was put to death and on that third day he rose again to life And the Bible declares that to believe on Him is to receive everlasting life. I would just encourage you, I would exhort you, today if you will hear His voice, don't harden your heart, but open your heart, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart today, I want you to realize you're not here by coincidence. You're not here by happenstance or that God has ordained. If you can receive it from before the foundations of the world that you would be here on this day, at this time, you might have the opportunity to hear His Word, to respond to the invitation even unto salvation. But there's not many ways. There's only one way. Jesus is the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Nor is there any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so if you're prepared to humble your heart, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how young you are, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done. God loves you. And He demonstrated that love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You wanted nothing to do with Him, but man, He was searching out. He was reaching out for you. And so if you're willing to turn from your sin and trust in Him, I want to pray for you. Again, I'm just encouraging you not to miss your moment. And so if this is kind of resonating in you and it's like, man, I think He's talking to me. Well, I'm I'm not personally, but maybe the Holy Spirit's calling you out specifically can I pray for you you say yeah I'd love you to pray for me well then just raise your hand so I can see who you are and if I see who you are I'll, God bless you man you can put your hand back down God bless you too anyone else I see you don't resist the Lord man receive the Lord anyone else <laughs> alright listen, I'm going to pray. Matter of fact, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You don't have to pray out loud. I want you to know God's searching your heart, though you are more than welcome to pray out loud or quietly there or however you want to. But the Bible declares that all sin falls short of the glory of God. Guys, we've all blown it. But if we'll confess our sin, what does it mean to confess? Does it mean just to say so? Well, yes and no. Yes, we acknowledge it, but more than just saying it, it means I'm agreeing with God about it. I acknowledge that my sin is exactly what He says it is. And that I need to turn from it. That's what repentance means, guys. To repent means to turn around. You're going one direction. It's away from God. You're going to repent. You're going to turn around and go toward God. And as you draw near to Him, the Bible is clear. He will draw near to you. And you will seek the Lord and you will find Him when you search for Him with all your heart. And so just come before Him. Just reach down in the deepest part of your heart that you know how to access. And I'm just encouraging you to get on your face before God in your heart and just say, God, here I am. And I humble myself before you. And God, I acknowledge, I admit, I confess that I am a sinner. And I fall so short of your glory your perfection and Lord Jesus I'm asking that you would come into my heart into my life that you would fill me with the person and the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would make me new Lord, I believe in you. Lord, I receive you. And thank you for putting my name in your book of life. Listen, I want to encourage you that if you were praying with me, something to the extent of what I was leading you in, God knows your heart. The Bible says that if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things are made new. I want you to know you're leaving here different than you came in. Oh, you may look the same outwardly, but you're an entirely different person inwardly. Just be blessed by that. Rejoice in that. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your righteousness, and truth.